Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, a GP and clinical lead for mental health and dementia. And we're really pleased today to welcome another colleague and friend from Somerset, uh, Dr. Simon Cooper. Simon, what do you do? So uh, thank you, Andrew, for um, uh, inviting me. Um, So my name's Simon Cooper. I'm a consultant physician with a specialist interest in uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, dementia and related disorders. And I work at Musgrove Park uh, Hospital. That's great, Simon. Thank you very much for coming along because we want to talk today about living well with Parkinson's disease. And um, perhaps you could start by helping us. What What is Parkinson's disease? So that's a, a simple question with either a simple answer or a difficult answer. But uh, basically, it is a neurodegenerative condition that affects the, the brain and the whole of the nervous system and obviously as time progresses the symptoms and problems that the patient uh, has progress and change and develop um, so uh, so it can affect a whole variety of aspects of the way the brain works the nerves work and Simon I think a, a lot of people will know about the tremor that you get with Parkinson's disease and I certainly see a lot of patients who have a tremor and are worried that it's Parkinson's when it's not. Can you tell us a little bit about the the tremor side of things? So um, not all patients with Parkinson's disease have a tremor and you you don't have to have a tremor to actually have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease made. Uh, About two thirds of the patients have tremor and classically with Parkinson's disease, it's what we call a resting tremor. So the, the, the old term was pill rolling tremor, the sort of rolling of the fingertips off on one side more than the other side. Um, but you can have other types of tremor with Parkinson's disease. And equally important to say, of course, is that not everybody who has a tremor has Parkinson's disease. And quite a lot of patients get worried when they have a tremor. And actually, they don't they don't have Parkinson's disease. They may have other conditions that can often look very like Parkinson's disease, the commonest one that people may have heard of is something called benign essential tremor. So as a doctor who deals with Parkinson's, uh, we like to see that classical one-sided, beautiful pill rolling tremor because it actually is something that reassures us that we're on the right track. I'm so glad to hear that because I was going to ask about benign essential tremor because the tremor being trembling, essentially, you, 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 you bake a little bit. Thank you. That's great. So I learned about Parkinson's many, many years ago, and there was something about a triad of symptoms or a triad of signs, three particular perspectives on it. Yeah. So it depends whether you're British or American. So as in in medicine nowadays, as you know, we have guidelines that tell us how we should be making a diagnosis of a condition. So the British guidelines actually have four features. The American guidelines have three features. So because we're British, we'll, we'll, we'll be patriotic and we'll go for the four. So the four features are something called bradykinesia, which is slowness of movement, but also reducing size of movement. Uh, and then people can have the tremor is the second of the four features. Uh, rigidity or stiffness in the joints and muscles. So patients often feel a bit stiff. And they may actually present initially to a physiotherapist with shoulder stiffness and problems like that is the third feature. And then in the in, in the UK, we add change in the way people walk and stand. 
postural changes. How interesting. Thank you. So I've learned something new today, that it was four in Britain, and uh, because I only learned the three. Just got back to the bradykinesia. So what sort of things might happen? Would, would people's faces remain the same, or is there a change there? So people often will notice that their face becomes less animated. They, it moves less well. Sometimes, um, you know, friends that will say, oh, you're not smiling as much as you used to. Um, and what we notice is that the face becomes slightly stiff, um, lacking in emotion. People don't look quite as happy. Uh, and one thing that can happen is people, the way people blink can change as well. So you actually may notice that they don't blink as frequently as you or I would. And that's something really important for uh, people living with those with Parkinson's to know, isn't it? Because often they'll misinterpret that lack of emotional uh, expression on the face as meaning that the person isn't feeling emotion. But that's not the case, is it? No, no. So, I mean, people will often comment, oh, you, you know, you're looking a bit miserable when actually that's you know, often not the case. And it faces are really important in sort of transmitting messages and communicating with people you know both in a, in a way that we're conscious of but also in a, in a subconscious level and and so actually if you have a face that's not as mobile it's useful to at least understand how people might perceive that and you mentioned that it's a neurodegenerative disease like dementia so the, the brain degenerating, the, the, the nerves degenerating. Do we know about why that happens in some people? Well, okay, so um, mostly we don't know. So the people we don't know, we call idiopathic. In other words, we haven't found an underlying cause, but it can be caused by a number of triggers. And there are certainly rarer genetic causes of this. And there are postulated toxins out in the environment and community that are uh, postulated to initiate this process. Um, obviously, one of the things that's become quite um, fashionable recently is uh, around repeated head injury. So something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So uh, pe many people remember Muhammad Ali, you know, the world champion boxer who had Parkinson's towards the end of his life. And the question is whether he had Parkinson's because of the repeated head injury um, and, and certainly we're seeing people who play football and contact sports. But this is becoming a concern. And there's um, concerns, isn't there, around some pesticides, which is a, a particular worry with the farmers in Somerset. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so organophosphorus chemicals, things in sheep dip. Uh, there's a chemical called rotenone that people may have used to spray on their roses. And they're certainly linked to those sorts of chemicals with development of Parkinson's type symptoms. And also a variety of other things like heavy metals. Quite a lot of the heavy metals are linked to it as well. Interesting. Um, Simon, what, what sort of ages do, do people get Parkinson's? Is it something that really happens at the end of your life? Is it Does it happen commonly when you're in middle age or young? And, 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 and how common is it in total in Somerset? So... Um, there are two, two basic patterns. There's sort of what we call young onset Parkinson's and then later onset Parkinson's. Uh, the age at which you become young or, or older is up for dispute. Um, many people have a cutoff of 55, but, but mostly most Parkinson's disease is a, effectively an aging condition. So commoner as people get older 
and the, the numbers we talk about prevalence rates because it's a condition that you have and then you continue to have um, something called incident rates are not as useful prevalence rates tell you more about the sort of burden of the condition in the population and the prevalence rates in Somerset are around 200 per 100,000 of the population. So, so we have over a thousand patients with Parkinson's on our on our caseload. And related conditions like dementia, we know that lifestyle can play a big part in whether they're likely to happen. So, forty percent of cases you can reduce with exercise, good diet, and and so on. Does that apply to Parkinson's as well? Um, so there are some epidemiological studies that say if you do certain things, you're less likely to get Parkinson's. How how causal that is is difficult. But certainly if you drink tea, you're more likely to get Parkinson's. If you drink coffee, you're less likely to get Parkinson's. If you smoke, you're less likely to get Parkinson's. But but th- is that the same as saying that the cause of the condition? No. And I think you have to just be cautious how you interpret the you know epidemiological studies you know you mustn't overread into them so i'm not suggesting everybody then suddenly stop drinking tea and take up smoking because i'm not sure that would for the for the whole of them be healthy thank you simon correlation is not causation you're very healthfully pointing that out to us despite what may happen on the news sometimes about about various things so um, let, let's say I'm I'm um, I'm 60 or 60. Let's say I'm 64 last week, um, and uh, that um, my wife is worried that, or my partner is worried that I've got um, uh, that I'm I'm my writing has got smaller, my face isn't as mobile, and and I have a bit of a resting tremor. What what's the likely pattern that that you know what what should we do about seeing the doctor what should we do about getting a, a specialist appointment what what and what's likely to happen so um with those set of features and clinical signs you know i would strongly recommend that somebody go and seek uh, uh input from an initially general practitioner because uh, obviously there are other things that can look like parkinson's it's not a always a straightforward diagnosis um, but certainly that would I would recommend that, particularly if somebody is concerned about this or worried about this. And there's good news, isn't there? Because unlike dementia, where we haven't got drugs that, that change the course of the disease, in Parkinson's, there's a lot of drug treatment available that can help. Yeah, so there are certainly lots of medications out there that we use um, to manage the symptoms of Parkinson's patients. Um, that, that we still discuss uh, and argue whether we have truly what we call disease-modifying treatments. So uh, similar for dementia, we, we, there are medicines that can help symptoms in some patients. In Parkinson's, the medicines are slightly better at helping the symptoms uh, than, than they would be, say, in some of the dementias. But at the moment, the evidence is that most of these, if not all of them, are not changing the the, the nature of the disease. Obviously, there's a huge amount of research going on across the neurodegenerative conditions, looking for the, the medicines that will definitely alter the condition of the of the disorder. But actually, probably at the moment, there's more evidence related to living well and being healthy and looking after yourself and managing other risk factors uh, as having a bigger impact on the way the disease is going to progress 
than some of the simple symptomatic treatments. That's really interesting that you mentioned that living well, because that's our, our focus today. And if we could come back to medication afterwards, but if I've, if I've got early Parkinson's and it's been diagnosed and we've excluded others in the differential diagnosis, other possibilities, what, what advice would you be giving me or would your specialist colleagues be, specialist colleagues or specialist nurses be giving me? So um, uh, the first thing is every patient's different and they all present slightly differently and the impact on them and the way they um, respond to it's different. But I think there are some general principles that are will apply across the board. And a lot of it's about having a healthy lifestyle. So eating the right things. Um, and we, you know, people have looked at diet and the impact of it on these sorts of conditions. But eating the right food, having the right diet, about not um, drinking too much alcohol, certainly not smoking, because we know smoking will add to the, the, the burden of disease. Um, being very active, so physically active, regular exercise, and there are a whole series of guidelines as to the type of balanced exercise program that you should be considering. Uh, having a, a having a, a sort of a proactive approach to your condition, so that's really about you know not ignoring it but not being driven by it. So keeping interested in it, trying to get information around it. Um, you know, looking at what the developments are. So keeping up to date, keeping connected, really, if you like, to the sort of to, to the, the, the population who manage Parkinson's and people with Parkinson's. So it's a bit about sort of just getting engaged, which I think is very helpful. So those those general principles will apply to everybody and will will help individuals both in terms of how they respond to their condition, how they manage their condition, um, but also their general health. And you mentioned that it's a neurodegenerative. It gets a bit worse as time goes by. It's progressive. So are you able to give a time scale to people when they're first diagnosed or is it very variable from one to another? So it, it is very variable. And I try not to give a, a definitive time scale, certainly when you first meet somebody. Um, Basically, people will change at, at, at a rate, really, that's just for them, specific to them. So some people will change very slowly. Some people will change more quickly. If you do all the healthy things we kind of touched on, the evidence is you're probably going to change more slowly. You'll still change. Um, and there are certain disease patterns which we know generally do better and generally do worse. So... Um, the, 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 what we call the tremor predominance condition. So if you were a 55-year-old man and the main issue is your tremor, then actually we know your, your disease is going to probably change much more slowly than if you're an 80-year-old with much more difficulty walking and stiffness and, and that's that pattern. So there are, there, there are some general rules that we can apply, but at the end of the day, every person's an individual their whole picture is different to somebody else's. Um, and so you have to really look at how somebody changes over time. And a lot of people will have heard about the the dementia, the memory problems that can come with Parkinson's. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, so all neurodegenerative disorders, you know, they get worse with time. And the, how people present really depends on which bit of the brain the condition kind of starts in but it will spread to involve other bits of the brain. 
And once Parkinson's starts to involve the bits of the brain that are involved in memory, so that what we call the cortex of the brain, people will start to get those sorts of memory-related problems and cognitive problems. And if you so there was a very large longitudinal study done in Australia, the Sydney long-term Parkinson study, and what that says is that if you have Parkinson's for long enough, you are very, very likely to get cognitive problems or dementia. And they kind of would say, if you've had Parkinson's for 20 years, then 75 to 85% of patients, if you study and look at them in detail, will have evidence of that part of their brain not functioning. So they'll have evidence of a dementia. Uh, people do sometimes, there's another condition which is called Lewy body dementia or Lewy body disease, which has a close relationship to Parkinson's, um, but but the condition starts in a different bit of the brain. So they often present with the dementia side of it earlier and then get the Parkinson's physical features that we've touched on already. So they kind of get it in the reverse order as opposed to people with Parkinson's disease. Thank you. Very interesting. Just going back to those things we should and shouldn't do. So smoking is is bad for, for many things and will make our Parkinson's worse. Do we know anything about vaping, Simon, or is that too recent? There, there isn't a lot of evidence about how vaping affects the progression of disease. One of the problems, of course, is with a, a slowly changing condition like Parkinson's in most cases, to actually get good evidence, you've kind of got to follow people up for a very long time. And they haven't. That there are studies ongoing, but they've not been on not really long enough um, for us to get any meaningful results at this point in time. Um, so I, th- I think people are looking at it, but I don't think the answer is there at the moment. Thank you. And the, the the tea and the coffee that you mentioned earlier is that's correlation rather than causation, possibly, or we absolutely. So, so people have looked at you know things that patients with Parkinson's do more than other people who don't have Parkinson's. And, that, and tea drinking is just more common in people who then go on to get Parkinson's. Is it causal? Almost certainly not. Um, smoking again, you know, why is it protective? We, I don't think we know. And, I, you know, it's just one of those interesting epidemiological facts that people often you know, say, oh, that's interesting. Um, I think this is, you know, it's about being healthy and, and trying to live as healthily as possible. So a little, a little bit of tea, fine. A little bit of coffee, fine. Obviously, don't go drinking 200 cups of coffee a day because you'll have other problems. Definitely a pharmacological dose in that. Even, even, even actually, even four or five can be a pharmacological dose and, uh, and give one symptoms. Um, thinking about what treatments one might have, um, there are, you mentioned medications. Are there any particular ones? And is there anything instead of medication for some people sometimes? So um, the, the, to keep it simple, obviously the main chemical that we talk about as doctors related to Parkinson's symptoms is a chemical called dopamine. And so there are medicines that basically enhance dopamine. And there are three ones that we use initially which all do this in a slightly different way um, so there's simple one called levodopa which kind of gives your brain the basic ingredients to make dopamine there are drugs called dopamine agonists that mimic dopamine in the brain and then there are drugs called monoamine oxidase inhibitors so rosanidine or selegiline and they kind of stop the dopamine in the brain from being broken down um, so those are the sort of that, that's the sort of basis of most of the drugs that we use. 
Um, there are a, a few other drugs that we use sometimes, which are less frequently used nowadays that work in a slightly different way. Um, in terms of alternative interventions, so, you know, people have been doing brain surgery on patients with Parkinson's for a very long time. In fact, brain surgery was a treatment before there were medicines that were effective for Parkinson's, uh, and then they became less fashionable when medicines came in. But nowadays, in the old days, we used to make what we call lesions in the brain, so make damage a little area of the brain. Nowadays, we can put effectively a, 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 something called the deep brain stimulator in the brain, which is a, a like having a pacemaker into the brain that um, controls the way the brain's nerves talk to each other. So we can we can use um, surgical techniques. Uh, to manage some patients with Parkinson's. I used to work close to French Hospital, as was, where they they pioneered that sort of work and saw some really good results with patients. Um, what about other supports? So we've said that the drugs can help, but they they don't cure it. What what resources are there for people with Parkinson's to turn to? So I think it's very important that people with Parkinson's think about having their what I call their health network as part of the, the program. So the health network will obviously involve their Parkinson's nurse. So they may have a, a, a nurse that works within the Parkinson's team who's got special skill sets in helping people with Parkinson's. They may have a physiotherapist and an occupational therapist involved in that team as well. Obviously, their, their specialist would be another person who they should, you know, develop a relationship with so that you can have a, a good because sharing information and um, you know being able to communicate with the people involved in your condition is an important part of the support process and then of course there are third sector organizations out there to support so uh, there are a number of societies so the Parkinson's Society Cure Parkinson's are important uh, organizations that you know spend a lot of time supporting people with Parkinson's but also spend a lot of time financing research and um, you know developing research strategies so uh, there are third sector organizations obviously there's the sort of all, all of the other well-being type of things so you know making sure you uh, access a local gym or the local exercise classes you can go onto the local websites and see what else is available so in somerset i strongly recommend Patients look at the the Age uh, UK website and search what's happening in Somerset in terms of support activities, which may not just be exercise groups. It may be, um, you know, carer support groups, uh, information groups. Uh, so th there's an awful lot out there in in the community that offers a sort of a, a network of support for patients, which I think is really important to develop. And presumably attitude of mind is important as well, isn't it? A, a lot of us will have seen the Billy Connolly and his uh, his way of living well with Parkinson's. Did, does that play a big part, do you think? Yeah. So, the, so if you wanted me to summarise the sort of four key things that people with Parkinson's should, you know, think about, uh, and any older person, pro the, the right diet, the right exercise program having a routine that involves social networks and developing those social networks and support networks and the fourth one is having what i call a purpose so actually having um some personal goals and some prioritization about what's important to that person and if you have that purpose then that will you know 
help motivate everything else and pulls it all together. So I, I find patients who clearly say, you know, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. It's not it's not being unrealistic about it, but it's actually having a determination to make the best of things. I think that that's really an important driver. And um, certainly from my experience, people who have that kind of approach generally do better than people who are too passive interesting and i just wonder and that's such important and positive um news that you're giving us and advice and and something also about planning because um things an end will come to us all one day um at what point should we think about wills well i suppose we should all think about wills but things slightly more legal like powers of attorney and is there a good time to think about that um because you mentioned that parkinson's can be neurodegenerative so, so the, the, the answer is, yes, people should think about it uh, r- really as early as they feel comfortable thinking about it. Um, obviously, it can be quite challenging if you're a 40-year-old who's just been given a diagnosis of Parkinson's. You know, do you want to you know, engage in that kind of thought processes at that point in time? But I do often find that people delay doing that and delay thinking about things like power of attorney and that side of thing. Um, so I, I, I try to encourage people early on that these are the things we need to be at least touching on and thinking about. And certainly I know the Parkinson's nurses are particularly good at getting people to you know, open up about these difficult issues. Uh, so so my, my general advice is the earlier people think about it, the better. But you've got to you know, trigger it at the right time for the individual. So everybody's different. And sometimes trying to force somebody who clearly isn't in the right place to be thinking about that sort of decision here and now, trying to force somebody to do that can sometimes have a negative effect. And that's one of the advantages of having developing a relationship with your patients. So the the reason I love looking after people with Parkinson's disease, despite the fact it's a neurodegenerative condition with no cure at the moment, is it actually allows me to develop a really good working relationship with a patient to try and help them as best I can to do the best that they can. And and, and that, I think, is an important part of the whole process. I'm sure that relationship is really important, Simon. It'd be, it, for those who've got relationships with you because of their illness, I'm sure that's really beneficial for them. There's a word that sort of comes up, a slightly technical word, titrate, um, in, re- in response to medication. What what does titrating medication mean? So um, titration means you give somebody a level of a medicine, say 10, just as a, a figure, and you monitor their response. And then if you think they've had a bit of a response, you then say, OK, well, let's try a higher dose. And you might go to 15 or to 20. And what, but what you do is you, you're supposed to objectively assess how they respond to it because these are symptomatic treatments if somebody gets a benefit symptomatically then obviously you say okay it's worth pursuing and pushing this further if somebody gets no benefit at all then you you, know, you have to ask yourself giving them a higher dose is that going to make a big difference and every patient's different so some patients will need a higher dose than other people and parkinson's drugs are, are odd aren't they in that uh, sometimes timing is very critical and and just tweaking that can make a big difference can't it 
yeah so some some patients are very very sensitive to the timing the gaps between them some patients are very sensitive to the type of food they have when they take some of their pills so some some patients will be aware if they have lots of protein so you know, lots of meat or cheese that sort of um, that sort of constituent in their stomach at the time to take the medicines medicines don't seem to work as well um, and, and, you know and this is something that they kind of get to know by living with their condition and kind of being proactive in it if they're proactive in the management of it they'll often come to me and say oh you know if I if I eat this certain food I know this is going to be a problem um, so but but again some patients it's a big problem some patients have no problem with it at all so it's a it, it is very um, specific to the individual and simon we're we're coming to the end of our time what's it's been an absolutely fascinating uh chat and i, I think we'll all have learned a lot but can i ask you just to remind us of those four principles because they're they're relevant not just to people with Parkinson's or even just older people, but to all of us. I think so. I think if we can leave people with that in their minds, that to take away, that would be brilliant. So, first one is uh, diets, and clearly there are some diets that are much healthier than other diets, and some diets that are bad for you. So, having a healthy, good diet, which basically means less meat, more vegetables, that that sort of thing. Um, second is around exercise and doing regular exercise and you should have what we call a, a, an integrated exercise program so that should involve not just walking uh, it should involve things like stretching balance work strengthening work and and that should almost be done on a you know like a timetable part of their daily routine uh, the third uh, is about developing this sort of support networks and links and, and that's a little also a bit about getting connected with what's happening and understanding what's happening with the with your condition whether it's parkinson's or another uh, or another uh, condition and then the fourth one is really about that sort of that that internal motivation and drive that the, somebody has a purpose for what they're doing so they actually it's a bit about taking control of your life and taking control of what's happening to you rather than, you know, being a passive recipient to a condition. Simon, that is such great advice for life generally. And you've you've talked us through Parkinson's, what it is, um, what people can do about it, how we can be helped if we've got it. And you've given us a really great tour around living well with Parkinson's. So thank you very much indeed. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.